Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door, having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. Hello guys, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you coming and listening so much. I'm doing something a little bit different this time in that I'm allowing one of my collections to go over both the Friday Parenthood episodes as well as the Wednesday. Normally I would stick a collection just uh, on the Wednesday episodes, but I decided to start this one last Friday and to continue it for however many episodes until I feel like I've exhausted this topic, talking about the childhood immunization schedule here in Australia. Um, now, just before I go on with that, thank you. Thank you for all of your guys' support. I got a lot of messages. It turns out that I'm obviously articulating things that a lot of you have felt and wondered yourself, but kept to yourself for fear of being ostracized, which I completely understand. But just before we do go on to part two, I just want to say thank you. And I will mention people's names at the end for the people that have supported this podcast. If you would like to support what I do here and to help me to continue to get the message out, I know there are new listeners all the time and I really appreciate it. But Buy Me A Coffee is the platform that I thought was so cute and that I loved. And the link to that is on the show notes, uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast today, but also on my Instagram. So you can do one-off donations or become a member for $5 a month. And so, of course, like I said before, I have an aim where I'd love to be able to podcast for a day a week. So I make absolutely no apology for doing this series. I think we actually have a responsibility to ask the questions because how can an immunization schedule go from 13 doses up to 52 without us even so much as asking a question. So today we're going to unpack the four reasons why that schedule has risen so drastically in such a short amount of time. But just before we do, let me do a quick recap. I would completely encourage you guys to go back and listen to last week. But just to to recap on that, in the 60s, all of the the vaccines which of which there were only 13 doses was completely voluntary. And those 13 doses were given um, uh, only for the infectious diseases of uh, diphtheria, tetanus, and whooping cough. There was no national schedule. In the 1970s, that increased to 18 to 19 doses, but they were not given until three months of age and no more than three doses at a time. This is when the WHO, the World Health Organization, started to get involved, and that's what I want to go into today. Then in the 1990s, that rose to 26 doses. Again, no more than three doses at a time. But by 2023, that jumped to 52 doses from birth. By the way, not 52 doses at birth. You know what I'm saying. The immunizations begin at birth, and often they are given eight doses at a time. And as we know, we're told that it's voluntary, but now it's attached to a whole heap of things like our parenting welfare benefits and the ability to be able to put our children into childcare and a lot of schools. So we need an explanation behind this because we learned that all of the infectious diseases had become low risk, which was stated by Australia's first director of health in 1956 
that these were no longer a risk for Australian children. And this was before any vaccine schedule had been rolled out. Those vaccinations were rolled out after infectious diseases were, as I said, not even an issue after they were declared no longer a threat. So we touched on the big question of how did this policy change? And we looked at how Australia no longer followed our own health strategy, but in the 70s, we adopted the WHO strategies. And while Australia had a social approach to medicine, that is, we looked at uh, health of our nation holistically, we were looking at things like improving lifestyle. The WHO had a completely different approach. They wanted to prevent disease through medical intervention. Okay. And so there was a completely different agenda. So the big question for today, I'm going to break it down into four parts. If infectious diseases are so low risk, why was not only the vaccinations introduced, but the schedule has been added to, uh, to to the point where it's quadrupled? Now, like I already said, the WHO got involved in the 70s and Australia adopted their policies. So now what we have to do is look at the WHO. How have they justified the increase? Now, you can find all of the following, well, at least for the first three uh, reasons that I'm going to give on various policy documents whenever the WHO talk about the vaccine schedule. The first reason that was given was elimination. So they wanted, they went from um, from these diseases being low risk and, and people still getting them to wanting to actually eliminate. See, Australia was happy that infectious diseases had become low risk and were not a serious risk to the majority of the population. But the new scientific model that was brought in by the WHO changed the focus from reducing illness and death through our better lifestyle to preventing or eliminating these diseases through vaccination. Now, the term elimination was introduced for Hep B, Influenza B, Pneumococcal, Meningococcal, Chickenpox, and Rotavirus. Now, the other interesting thing to note is that there was a change in language at the same time. They stopped using the word infectious diseases and they started using the word vaccine preventable diseases. That little change of language is quite manipulative because what it does is it makes us feel very positive towards vaccinations. Like, oh, of course we want those because they're going to prevent illnesses. So rather than calling chickenpox an infectious disease, it's now called a vaccine preventable disease. So of course that makes you go, oh wow, amazing. I want to go out and get the chickenpox vaccine. But this is the thing. Why are they so bent on eliminating all of these infectious diseases, which are just already low risk, right? And they are low risk. So the justification of going from 13 to 52 doses in order to eliminate diseases that pose very little risk seems a little bit of a stretch. Would you agree? Now, apparently right now, there's an outbreak of measles in Europe. And of course, if you see the articles, it also says, well, they've got a low immunization rate. And so that's the cause for it. Europe are having an outbreak in measles because they've got a low immunization rate. So people are are using this to, to make a point about vaccinations. But my question more is, what's wrong with actually getting the measles? Like it was already proven to be low risk. 
So, so what if there's an outbreak? There has to be more behind it to be able to increase it from 13 to 52, just to eliminate something that really is at complete low risk to a population. So they came up with a second reason, and that is because of discomfort. It was considered reasonable that if we could alleviate the discomfort of these infectious diseases by vaccinating against them, and it was safe to do so, why not? And look, for those of us that have had any of these infectious diseases, we would probably all agree they are very uncomfortable. Some of you listening might remember the pain of having the mumps, or like I said last week, I remember how horrible I felt when I had the chicken pox. I kind of loved staying home for two weeks though, but I remember how itchy I was and I couldn't really sleep. And my mum would have me for hours in the calamine uh, lotion baths. But yet again, does that still seem to you an overreach to extend the schedule from 13 to 52, just so that children don't have to experience a little bit of discomfort? All right. Third reason, this one seems to be a little bit more reasonable than elimination and stopping discomfort. The third reason is because they wanted to prevent long-term complications that these diseases can produce later in life. So an example would be that chickenpox can return in later years as shingles, which anyone that's had them, I haven't, but I've had family members and friends who have, it's really painful. So the chickenpox can hide dormant in our nerve cells waiting for the time to explode as shingles. And as well as the pain, it can be dangerous depending where the shingles are. It can be a risk to things like eyesight and spinal cords. So it sounds pretty reasonable to protect ourselves from any long-term complications of an infectious illness, but we have to ask ourselves a few questions here. Firstly, well, can I still get the disease that I've been vaccinated against? And the answer is yes, you can. And most outbreaks do occur in highly vaccinated countries, especially in undeveloped and yet highly vaccinated countries. The second thing we must ask ourselves is what are the actual statistics on getting a long-term complication from an infectious disease? Because the statistics are very low. And thirdly, and this is the important thing, does the benefit of having a vaccination aka lowering my risk then of long-term complication, does that outweigh the risk of complication from the actual vaccine schedule? So it's having to weigh up the risk versus benefit. So all of these three reasons that I've stated, elimination, uh, stopping discomfort, and stopping long-term complications, all of those reasons are only justified if the solution, which is the vaccines, Uh, benefit, if the vaccine benefit outweighs the risks. So we have to then look at what's more risky, the discomfort or the vaccination schedule, a long-term complication or the vaccination schedule. Now we're going to get into that more next week. That's a bit of a sidebar, but I wanted to give you those three reasons that uh, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like they are good enough reasons to extend the schedule from 13 to 52 without us really being told what the risks are of that combination that we're giving our children. But I really want to park here on the fourth reason, because this is something you're not going to find very easily. This is something that's not talked about. And that is that the introduction of this PAC schedule is actually due to profit and politics. 
Now, I've only just discovered this myself recently, and it is important to have this part of the discussion, because if this part of the discussion is the case, then the motives for packing the schedule is not out of concern for our children, but it's money and power, which of course can cloud judgment. Now, we all know that both of these, money and power, corrupt. Now, the WHO, the World Health Organization, started off well with good intention, but vaccinating the whole planet couldn't be done by them alone. And by the way, neither did the original Director General of the WHO want to. Things actually started to change once uh, other organizations got involved. Now, surely all of this can't be true, right? Like how do we know it is or isn't though, unless we actually look into it? So for some of you that might say, you know what, Renee, you're crazy. As if the experts making our vaccine policies would do it to hurt our kids. Now, I agree. I sound cracker crazy. And I do not think that there are a bunch of people in a room rubbing their hands together with a wicked laugh, you know, let's hurt the children with the vaccination schedule. I don't think it's that sinister. But when we're being driven or people are being driven by money, power, politics, profit, all sorts of things can happen. So let me ask you this. Who are the expert immunization policy makers? What are their names? Who do they work for? Who are they being paid for, paid by? Which are the companies benefiting from the billions of dollars made from these vaccines? Because it is a billion dollar industry. Are they involved in the policy making? And are they then receiving any funding for the studies that are being done or for the development of them? Who are doing these studies that are telling us that vaccines are safe and effective? Can you prove to me before I go offering up my child to them for 52 doses of a cocktail of antigens and adjuvants that these policies are made by experts based on studies where the companies who make these 52 doses are not in any way benefiting? Can you guarantee that to me? Can you tell me that this is health health driven and that it's not power driven? Can you reassure me that it's safety driven and not money driven? And the only way to know is to actually do the homework, look under the bonnet, so to speak, and see if true, independent, long-term safety studies have been done. And if you can show me this and guarantee me this, awesome. Let's tick the box that vaccines are 100% proven to not be the cause of the rise in chronic childhood illness. And then we can move on and push for investigation, because I'm not going to stop here, because it's not normal what's happening to our children. It didn't exist decades ago. So then let's push for an investigation into all the foods, all the environmental chemicals and all of the plastics. If you guys want to see an amazing movie, I watched one last night actually called Dark Water on Netflix. Go check that out and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, how these big corporations think that they um, can do whatever they want because who are the little man? Us, the parents, we're the little man. Very fascinating about uh, Teflon and and the use of Teflon in all sorts of products in America and how this one little guy took a huge corporation. It literally took him decades, but he won. It's so good, guys. You've got to watch that movie. And by the way, that guy, he's a Christian and he's still fighting today because apparently at the end of this movie, we found out that there are 600 other chemicals that are not regulated, that are being hidden, 
that are poisoning uh, people in, well, that's in America and I've no doubt here too. So why don't you go check that one out? which by the way, it's all fact. Okay. So I'm not, you know, spinning you anything there. That's not true. So, you know, I'm really not invested into exactly what the reason is. I just want to know what the reason is so that we can actually protect our children and keep them safe and make sure that they're no longer going to suffer like many, many of them are. So let's park here and chat about that. Let's start off by just looking at the money here in Australia. For a start is in 1989-1990, the federal budget for vaccinations and public health only allocated $1.165 million, which was 4.4% of the total healthcare budget. Let's fast forward from 89-1990 to 2008-2009. Funding for vaccines or for the disease prevention was well in excess of $400 million. So there is a lot of money involved here. Who are the recipients of the 400 million? We have to ask ourselves these questions. All right, so let's have a look a little bit more at the WHO and how they actually practically outworked this schedule rise from 13 to 52. Now, like I said in the beginning, the WHO, they didn't want to eradicate every disease. They did not think that that should be the goal. The then HWO Director General warned that while smallpox eradication had provided important lessons, claiming that other diseases could also be singled out for worldwide eradication was not one of those lessons. So we really have to understand who the WHO are and how they went from having a Director General who said that to increasing our schedule to 52 and growing, by the way, guys. They want to add more. So the WHO is actually a United Nations multilateral agency. It's a part of that. So it's a part of the UN. Now, UN member countries such as Australia, we then choose whether to accept the WHO constitution, which we have, which means we fall in line and we look at their global policies and we adopt them. Now, since the 1940s, the WHO And the Children's Fund of the UN, which is known as UNICEF, U-N-I-C-E-F, the United Nations Children's Fund, they've both been dominant in influencing and shaping international health policy. So while the WHO provides the policy, UNICEF helped to implement it. So what was it that the WHO did? Well, they set a goal of health for all by 2000. Now, a vaccination program, according to the WHO, was just seen as one part of this, one part of a larger program of improving all aspects of community health, such as clean water, good nutrition, good sanitation. But what happened is, remember, UNICEF, who are part of the WHO, considered that to be too unrealistic, too expensive, and too many things to go for. So they decided, no, let's just focus on the vaccination coverage, and that's going to become the key measure used to assess the success of this Health for All by 2000. So a a universal vaccination program was promoted in 1982 and 1983 via this initiative by UNICEF called the Child Survival Revolution. And by the way, guess who created that initiative? It was not a medical expert, but it was the executive director of UNICEF, who, by the way, was qualified in not medicine, but economics and law. So eventually the WHO and UNICEF were also joined by the Rockefeller Foundation and the World Bank. 
So the World Bank, by the 90s, controlled the initiatives through their sponsorship. So in other words, by the 90s, we started to see money-driven decisions. When sponsors provide money, they have influence. So now we have a bank and the Rockefeller Foundation involved, of course, because they were looking and focusing on profit and power. So massive amounts of profits were made, some, by the way, of which was used to help vaccinate children in undeveloped countries. But the WHO was also receiving royalties from these private organizations. So there was a lot of conflict of interest. So because they were like, oh, we've got too much conflict of interest, they formed this uh, advisory board, this alliance called GAVI, G-A-V-I. So what happened at this time is the WHO said, hey, so that we can get this health for all by 2000, the first step in that is we want everyone to get the vaccination rate up to 80% by 1990. Now, there was no mention of tailoring this for countries who had their infectious diseases under control like us. It was just a one-size-fits-all. And I'm going to continue to talk about Garvey in just a moment and the role that they played. But that's what the WHO set. So they're like, hey, for us to be able to reach these stats, which UNICEF want us to reach, we've got to go 80% by 1990. So by 1990, this program succeeded. It was tick, tick, tick. And the vaccination rate went up to 80% for polio, diphtheria, whooping cough, tetanus, measles, and tuberculosis. So from 1974 to 1990, the uptake went from 5% to 80%. Really interesting. Of course, they like to claim the fact, they don't tell you that the vaccination rate was only um, 5% in the 1970s, by the way. They like to tout that, you know, look at us, we've eradicated disease since the 1970s. Ah, your uptake was only 5%, guys. So they decided, well, we've got to reset this goal because remember what we want, health for all by 2000. What was their measure? Vaccination rate. So they were like, okay, we now want to get 90% by 2000. We're not happy with our 80%. We want 90% by 2000. So now we've got this vaccination market that had grown and they had to keep up, right, to match these goals. And there weren't many companies making them at the time. So they needed more stakeholders. So you've got the WHO, you've got UNICEF, you've got Rockefeller, you've got the World Bank, and they decided, well, we've got to work with more private industries. And so that's what they did. And they invited private industry in to help fund the making, testing and producing of vaccines. So amongst these were the Bill and Belinda, Melinda Gates Foundation and heaps and heaps of pharmaceutical companies. Now, Australia was involved in this, by the way. Here in Australia, we had the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. I know you thought Murdoch was about media, right? Well, no, they've also got a research institute. So they became a part of this private industry. So Australia's got a finger in the pie there with the global um, policies that are being made. So all of this vaccination of 90% by 2000 was made possible because of this beautiful partnership between the public industry and the private partnerships. So of course, the goal would have to be profit. And of course, this gave them more control. Now, the WHO were actually concerned about what was happening, as were countries like Europe, who were very vocal in their concerns. So let's look at then 
Who were on the committees and the advisory boards setting these actual schedules? Who were the ones actually saying, okay, this is what we're going to introduce. These are the new ones. Who were the ones saying, okay, these are the 13 we started with. Who were the ones making all of the policies that got us to where we are today? Because there has to be some people in a room making these global health policies. Okay, so that's where Gavi comes into it. So the G-A-V-I. So global health policies that were promoted by the WHO were all made by Gavi. Now that stands for the Global Alliance for Vaccines Initiative. And these global health policies are why we saw Australia expand our national immunization programs, even though infectious diseases were a very low risk to Australian children. So who was Gavi formed by? Who were Gavi? Well, they were formed by the head of the World Bank in 1998 at a summit where there was a whole heap of all these organizations that I've been talking about. They were all present. And a bunch of stakeholders decided to join Gavi. So the Belinda, Belinda, I always call it Belinda, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the pharmaceutical companies, and so these people all had a stakehold uh, in Gavi, and so they all helped together to shape the policies. Now, Gavi also worked with the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Associations to design the global policies with a focus on new vaccines. So yes, let me make this really simple for you and say this in simple English. Yes, our public global policies were designed by the very people who were going to profit. The global health policies prompted by the WHO adopted by us are designed by a governing board that includes the World Bank and members of many vaccine manufacturers whose products are being promoted by Gavi. So we're talking about conflict interest central, but the conflict of interest keeps on going. These international policies are passed on to us through our national uh, bodies, our our national advisory board. Who's the national advisory board here in Australia? It is ATAGI. Never heard of them until the pandemic. That stands for the Australian Technical Advisory Group for Immunizations. So let's have just a little peek into ATAGI, who are getting, remember, their policies from Gavi. So international through to national through to you and me. So for a starters, the chairman of ATAGI is none other than Professor Nigel Crawford. Who is he? Glad you asked. He is one of the leading vaccine and infectious diseases experts. Isn't that a good thing? You'd want the head of ATAGI to be that. But who does he work for, guys? He works for the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. What do they do? I'm glad you asked. They help, amongst many things, develop and test vaccinations. They're also funded by, amongst other sponsors, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we've just got this huge circle of conflicts of interest. Now, there are other medical experts and doctors on ATAGI, which is amazing, but it's being headed up by the guy whose workplace the Murdoch Institute benefits from the vaccinations that he's telling us to get. 
So there are a lot of conflicts of interest, and I hope you've been able to stick with me on all that information because really, look, there's hundreds of research papers that you'd have to scour through. It's actually very complicated, which is why it's not so easy as just jumping on Google and going, oh, who heads up Atagi? Like you've got to actually start to dig deep into the bowels of research. Um, and, and it's just so complicated. It is literally like this, this whole web of this person is on this board, who's got this stakeholding in this company, and it's just fraught with conflicts of interest. So that is what is driving our kids to be having to be the recipients of these 52 doses. So it's global influences, it's industry, it's not local either to our Australian children based on our national needs and statistics. So let me just end with this. Parents here in Australia have actually had a gut feeling that something is maybe not right for a while now. And while the powers that be try to minimize this group of people, by, te- by, you know, labeling them and naming them the anti-vaxxers because, oh, look at that small pesky group of parents that are spreading misinformation. It turns out this must not be true because why then in 2012 did they feel the need to have to put out a booklet addressing us pesky parents' concerns? This little group of parents must actually not be so little or insignificant after all. So parents instinctively and increasingly had concerns. And so in 2012, our Australian government decided to respond. Now, they're not going to respond if this group is such a tiny group. It is a growing group. So they partnered with the Australian Academy of Science to put together a document called the Science of Immunization Question and Answers Booklet. Don't you love how they call this booklet the science of? In other words, we hold the science, we hold the narrative, we're the experts, not you, the parents. It's just all these little slight uses of language that are used to try and put us back in our box. Now, there is an updated version, so I would encourage all of you to go along. It is so easy to find. Just Google Australian Academy of Science or put in their Science of Immunization question and answer book, and it will come up. But I encourage you, put in there the 2012 version, but also put in the 2021 version. And we're going to look into this a little bit more next week. I want to look at um, the part that I didn't get to today, which was that third part in what is the risk versus benefit? What studies have been done to reassure us that uh, all of this is safe and effective for our children? So guys, thank you so much. I know that you're going to come and join me for that. And I really do appreciate your support and your help. And if like I said, you liked, you would like to join uh, the members of Buy Me A Coffee, I would really appreciate that. So big shout out to members Brooke, Victoria, Chloe, an anonymous member, Kylie, Sophie and Louise, as well as of course my one-time supporters. So go check that out on the show notes of where you're listening to this episode, but also my social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. I love you guys. Thank you so much for being with me. Can't wait to be with you next, uh, what are we, Wednesday, on Friday for the next episode of Shot in the Dark. Until then, have a good one. Bye.